Okay. Let's go fully live everywhere. Give us one second. All right. We are live. Welcome to the Marketing Live podcast. I am your host, Jake Litke. Today, we have Matt Taverna, who is a principal at Statera Data. Is it Statera Data or just Statera? Statera Solutions. But Statera Solutions is the yeah. company. The, um, the great. So um, today, we are going to be talking about second-party data. Um, we'll also get into first-party and third-party, so you explain all the differences. And um, let's start off. Matt, why don't you give us a quick quick introduction uh, of yourself and what Statera is? Sure. So uh, thanks, Jake, and thanks for everybody for joining us. Um, as Jake said, uh, I'm Matt Saverna. Um, about 18 months ago, um, actually you know, going on a couple of years now, we started Statera. Um, that was um, sort of sort of spun off, sort of uh, started adjacent uh, of another data company called Target Smart that, that I um, helped to run for the past decade. Before that, um, I've been in. Um, data and kind of um, data analytics and data acquisition for really my whole professional career. Um, I got started in college by uh, doing a couple public policy studies around um, crimes and how like data can help to solve um, different crimes. And so it was a lot of just like back way back when, when, um, you know, like actually paper uh, criminal reports were still uh, in vogue and used that to uh, jumpstart uh, my, my career. Uh, I worked at a, a law firm and, and worked in environmental litigation where I helped to audit um, different um, EPA documents in the same way, like these just like stacks of paper that we then translated to um, Excel and what we now call like big data sets. Um, and I really got into uh, the, the, the kind of current um, form of, of the data that uh, I helped to build now um, uh, in, in politics. And so I worked for about 20 years um, building voter files and um, different consumer data sets for um, the national political parties and labor unions and membership groups and advocacy organizations um, that were, you know, national data sets, multi-sourced. And um, uh, about, a, about a year ago, like I said, two years ago, we, we, we started Satera. So, and then, and so I, I left out one part. In, in between when I was working in environmental litigation and working in politics, I worked in tobacco control. And so I worked with all um, 46 state governments that were party to the Tobacco Massive Settlement Agreement and um, really got uh, um, my hands dirty in the regulated space, um, auditing tobacco sales and data and um, data on the uh, tobacco advertising regulations that were implemented with the tobacco uh, master settlement agreement. All right, so, so that's a that's a lot yeah, of that's, that's on me. That's my that's my resume. I didn't mean to have a mouthful there. So yeah, I mean, the terror really is kind of the culmination of everything that you know I, I kind of mentioned there on, on my career, but also with um, a, um, two folks that. Uh, Helped to, help to start the company with me, uh, Lindsay Shukrakez and Brian Whitaker, who were um, both in the, in the trenches with me in politics, but also um, you know you know had had other other data uh, functions uh, before that, and um, you know some senior level staff that we uh, have been working with for years that, that helped build our file. And so what we do is really two things: we build a national uh, consumer file, which is multi-sourced by different consumer data feeds. Uh, different um, marketing services data that that um, is available um, to, to to purchase, and we combine that with um, data from uh, government sources, and it um, leaves us with a national data set of 260 million Americans, and we have 1,700 different columns on each American. So it's, it's a big data set that is. Um, that that we that we build and maintain. It's updated like literally constantly by different consumer data feeds. Um, that's the first thing we do, and the second thing we do is is make that data actionable. Um, so we have a you know full disclosure just for this call. We have an integration with MediaGel that um, allows us to use 
um, some of the some of the contact information um, and different data points that we collect on individuals to help us run uh, really granular digital advertising uh, to those individuals. And that, so that's one way we make it actionable. Other ways, um, we have um, really good ways of updating residential address, um, email address, cell phone number, um, and we can help clients utilize that data to um, do different kind of communications programs. Um, so that, that's really what Satari does. Okay, so that's that's a lot of things yeah. that you're doing and a lot of things that you have personally done. Um, circling back to like where you started, I kind of had, I'm kind of curious, you said you were working on crime files. Is this like cold case files? Are you actually looking no, at- No, so is it, like, yeah, it was the boxes? No, so if a, if a gun was uh, found at the scene of a crime, which is kind of like, never happens, but if a gun, you know, if, if, if a gun was used in a crime and the gun contained a serial number, the theory was that if you could trace the ownership um, and the exchange of ownership with that serial number back to where it was manufactured, then um, that data over time and compiling those, the type of trails of serial numbers could help to stop gun violence. Um, and then uh, here in Massachusetts, I mean, I'm in Boston, um, it actually worked quite well. There was something called the Boston Gun Project in the late 90s that um, an operation ceasefire around uh, gang violence that really helped to uh, completely change the city of Boston and kind of turn it in, into what it is today. Um, and so they like, the, so they just like tracing, you know, that, that serial number. And it's, it was kind of like a very early form of, of, of a blockchain um, and kind of studying each transfer of ownership um, and then compiling that information of, you know, hundreds of different serial numbers. Uh, and, and that was the theory. So. So what you're saying is that you invented blockchain. Uh, yeah, that's right. I'm kidding. Um, okay. Right. So that's an interesting data point. Now you talked a lot about um, different kinds of uh, voter files um, and settlement files. It sounds like you've been working uh, through the transition of, of actual paper documents to digital format first. Um, when in your, cause you've been doing this for a while, when did you start to see a transition for you as a, as a data processor where you actually got the data you needed in a digital reasonably clean format versus trying to like digitize? I mean, I think on the, yeah, on the, on the, on the, on, uh, you know, the, the data that's kind of available on an open market. Like if you think of the data that backs up things like the live ramp data store and different marketplaces like that. I mean, that was, that was a pretty, um, pretty pretty market shift to uh, to digital um, it, during during the you know the middle of the two thousands, but for government source data and certainly um, you know client sourced first party data, like we're still waiting for the day when um, it all switches to digital. I mean we are still receiving CD ROMs of um, CDs of yeah. <laughs> of data that is sent to us by. Um, you know, state and municipal governments. We have uh, a couple of, there's a couple of cities and in, in, in counties um, in California that um, send, out, send out PDFs of Excel sheets and they're intentionally not, uh, you, you can't rip the data off of them. They like print them out and then make the PDFs. I don't, you know, we, I aren't sure whether, whether that's intentional or not. Um, and then, uh, like I said, you know, um, dealing with a multitude of clients, particularly in retail and, 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 and you know, smaller clients in CBG, um, we are helping to in, uh, put best practices in place uh, for, for data collection. So if you have, you know, sign-up sheets, um, things like that, uh, we, can, we can help kind of put those data collection processes uh, and help you operationalize them. But um, We'll, we'll kind of deal with whatever. We have ways to kind of scale um, our own acquisition where we can, um, you know, kind of farm out some, some data entry in, in, a really, in a really secure way. Um, there's, there's been times, particularly on, on things like political campaigns or, or, or trials, where there's everybody from senior staff on down to interns are, are helping to do some of the uh, data hygiene and Kind of making the columns and columns and rows add up, so it's it's an ongoing process, um, and it's one that I think 
particularly in today's privacy um, environment, uh, makes it really important to have best, like I said, best practices on the, like the collection and the recording of data, but also the storage of data, and then who's actually able to access that storage. Yeah, I think that um, for anyone that hasn't spent time working with large data sets, um, people don't generally understand the value of data hygiene and data cleaning. Any any data set, even if it's, let's say, um, in the context of like a dispensary, let's say it's a smaller dispensary and they have maybe some tens of thousands of customers, right, which isn't yep. necessarily a large data set by today's standards. Um, if you get that data set of a customer database, it's going to be incredibly messy. There's going to be missing fields. There's going to be duplicated entries. There's going to be a lot of um, a lot of different things that need to be to be sorted out. Uh, and then, especially on, on the missing data part, um, this is a place where I think your data set comes in. You've got you said it's 260 million Americans in, in yeah, data. yep, right. Um, and you've put the work in to make sure that those columns are lined up, right? So. I know that when we look at, because we work with a lot of dispensers and delivery companies, um, and you know, actually, let's just start to get into definitions of data, right? Because sure. that's kind of the premise of this. We are supposed to be talking about second party data, which I think is the um, least talked about form of data. Ever. Most yeah. people kind of say, okay, first party, that's intuitive. That's your own data, right? That's the customer has given you their information. You know their email address, their phone number. Um, Maybe some and, other yeah, and I, and I just like I'll, I'll stop there for a second, um, just for like the context of this call and for those that listening at home um, or you know or, or, um, the definitions we're giving and the kind of how we're describing this stuff uh, for the you know first party data is you know customer owned you know like a, like a, you own that data under certain state and federal regulations. So we're not lawyers. I, we can help you guide um, your conversations with your lawyers, but yeah. Uh, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I just want to make sure, sure that like those are understood. Things like CCPA um, obviously are, are 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 paramount, and so the definitions of data ownership and what that means. Um, I think Jake and I will talk in generalities, but the specifics of those obviously should be um, dealt with uh, with your attorney um, and with data clients, data uh, consultants like us. Yeah. Do we if we're gonna like do a legal disclaimer? Do we like speak in a soft voice so it's like a little font? No, um, I, I we are, we are not. This I is not legal advice. Yeah. Um, you can leave, yeah, right. We're not lawyers. Um, however, just there are some some specific examples of different jurisdictions. For yeah. example, in for GDPR purposes in Europe, IP address is considered a piece of PII, personally identifiable information, and it has certain rules around how you handle it. Whereas in the U.S., IP is not necessarily always considered PII. California has different rules. Every jurisdiction has different rules. So yes, we're we're going to talk in generalities of categories of data. Um, and I don't know that there's, well, I guess there are some legal definitions. But first-party data, we're going to say is you have a customer. That customer has voluntarily given you some of their information because they've purchased something from you or they've signed up for your newsletter. That would be considered first party data. Yep. You know someone's name and email address and whatever else they've provided to you. Um, then you've got third party data, which if you work in advertising, you have a reasonable understanding of that's data that you're buying from a third party that's entirely unrelated really to any data that you currently own or have access to. Would you say that's a good yeah. description of that? Yeah, and then, yeah, and it'll be compiled and acquired um, you know, in ways that are, um, you know, set out by law and by industry best practices, but, but it, but it hasn't, yeah, it, it, it has no, it has no relation to, um, your own customers, um, other than the utility to use it as second party data, which is the third. Yeah. We'll get to that next, just to, I'll give a couple examples just so yeah. everyone's real clear on this. So, you know, there's large companies like, say, Oracle um, in, the, in the broader advertising market, where if you wanted to create an uh, buy an audience of people that purchase a specific product or go to a specific gym or whatever it is, you can buy that audience and you can then run ads to that. You don't own that audience. You don't really know anything about it. It's just a it's targeting tactic um, inside the cannabis space. There's, you know, more specific players like New Frontier Data, for example, has, you know, a great set of data. Um, that they've aggregated through purchase history and a bunch of other things. 
again, that you can use that as targeting. You say, I want to you know, target edible shoppers in Michigan. Um, but those aren't your shoppers, which would be the first party data. So now this is where I'm going to I'm going to let you describe second party data. I try to do it sometimes. I think you might be better at it. Um, but most people don't use or understand how it, how it functions. So. Yeah. So, um, you know, for, for the for, for the purposes of, of what the work that we do, specifically the work we do in cannabis and, and what and what we've um, done in, in, in retail generally, second party data are. Um, data enhancements, record completion, um, and data hygiene that you do to your own lists. So if you are collecting for your, for your loyalty program um, or, or a, a newsletter, you collect email address, and then you've gone through the you know, disclaimers to tell those customers that you're gonna be using that data to contact them. Well, um, companies like Sajara and, and others can actually utilize third-party data to match that email address to a record, like on, on the 260 million person database that I mentioned, to actually complete that record. So we can append things like name, uh, residential address, um, other contact information, um, you know, other uh, ways to communicate with that customer. Um, and then we can also uh, append things that are, you know, kind of interesting um, and uh, directional on the way that people behave um, in their consumer market. So um, consumer interests, um, you know, large purchasing trends, um, home ownership, um, the kind of size of, of people's homes, and then um, things like zip code and people's census block are really- Did you say, did you say size of people's homes? Yeah, because if you, you know, if, if you can, if you, you know, and, and a lot of this is deductive. So um, at, at, a, at a county registry of deeds, um, the, that, the, you know, the, the public information that's available on your home purchase um, is aggregated and is applied to a file like mine to um, kind of make deductive reasoning on uh the size of your home and then your purchasing power related to that home. Um, so that's so all those all those elements can be appended to that email address that you have or the cell phone number you have or the name and address you have. Um, and so at, at the at the individual level, it's kind of creepy and it's kind of interesting. Um, it's not all that useful. Really, what where it gets useful is in aggregate. Again, so you have a customer list of 100,000 people. If you can only really append all that data to one person, that's really not very useful for your marketing. But if you can do, you know, where, where we get a list of that type, um, we get uh, anywhere between like a 60 and 90% match rate. Really, probably closer to, you know, the 60 to 70%. Um, and in aggregate, if we can if we can tell you something about sixty thousand of your hundred thousand customers and how that trends, kind of, are your customers do they live around your dispensary? Do your customers also make other major purchases? Um, are your customers married? Are your customers from um, like you know like large households where there's um, other other people that are uh, also um, Contributing to the to the household income, um, those types of uh, um, attributes can be kind of gleaned from second party data, which is again just the, like the application of other data to your owned and operated data set. Um, so it's I have data. That's a that's a like a prerequisite. Prerequisite is that you have some sort of information, some data about your customers. Yep. I then can go to Statera or companies like Statera and say, how can you augment, uh, clean up, fill in gaps and give me information about my customers that I didn't already have, which then in aggregate gives you, you know, and the thing I always think of is marketing strategies. There's other things right. that you can use more, but that's pretty much where I go to. Like when you said size of house, this is unrelated to cannabis entirely, but it's like, okay, well, if we know someone has a large house and they live in an area that gets lots of sun, 
that seems like a good candidate for someone that would need solar. Solar panels. Yeah. Big houses are expensive to cool. Yeah. Odd areas, right? Yep. Uh, okay, so that one I just made up, but I suspect that you have some interesting ways that you've used data, second-party data, augmenting for, I'm guessing, marketing campaigns, but probably some other things as well. Um, can you like share a couple of? Yeah, I mean, I think you know when when I got started in um, in the kind of uh, I, I lived in Washington D.C. for um, about 15 years, and I, I worked in politics, but I also worked with a lot of advocacy organizations, a lot of government organizations, a lot of membership organizations, and the, the name of the game um, for a lot of them was not necessarily selling them anything. Not uh, the, you know the, the membership list they had or they were the uh, advocates they had they, they wanted people they want to re-engage so it's all about re-engagement you have somebody that you you talked to two years ago a year ago that you haven't heard from again um you don't know if they're you know like a like a repeat um volunteer you don't know if they're uh in the, in the, in the case of retail if they're a repeat customer how do you reactivate and re-engage with that uh person in that, in that record um, and so what, 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 what we did then and what we continue to do um, is to uh, kind of try to see if we can complete a record and if we can update uh, that person's contact information. Um, and a lot of the time, it's, uh, it's really about knowing if a person moved. Um, did they move? Did they get married? Um, and a lot of those things are actually really well operationalized by the United States government through the United States Post Office. Um, when, when you know something that's actually very well utilized still to this day um, by by consumers and by 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 Americans is uh, your national change of address card. And so when you are sending a piece of direct mail, um, your mailhouse, the per, you know the people who are actually doing the mailing, uh, have, will have access to um, you know different data that the government provides. Uh, to update addresses. We utilize that data as well to, to do the same kind of hygiene uh, for, you know, for mail and, 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 and to kind of, kind of find people where they, where they live. That's kind of like the, like the really bottom line um, and, the, and the re-engagement on that is, um, it, it, like, is it, like it's actually like quite uh, remarkable just, just being able to send somebody a new mailer or a new text message or a new email, uh, kind of where they're, or you know, shooting a new digital ad, uh, kind of at them, where their eyeballs are, rather than where you thought they were, um, is is just like remarkably uh, effective and remarkably important. I mean, we've we've seen um, if you think about like a like a like a ROAS, um, anything from like a, a on an index level, one hundred and fifteen percent engagement or fifteen percent more engagement. Um, on a list that is kept up with that kind of hygiene versus one that isn't. So, you know, the example of when, when we when, when you know, one of my first projects was we worked with the Peace Corps and they were having, um, they, they were having their, uh, for, it was their uh, 45th anniversary, I think, and they wanted to find every Peace Corps volunteer they ever had. They had some of these old lists. Some of them were paper and kind of like onion skin paper, if you ever have seen carbon copy onion skin paper. Um, and we help them kind of get that data in order and update uh, addresses, find people that they hadn't engaged with in, in decades. Um, and they were able to actually uh, up their uh, contact rates like almost like 30%. And these are like really um, institutional, well-known organizations that um, have similar problems to the kind of upstart, scrappy dispensaries that that, that we see today in cannabis uh, on on reengagement. So it's not something that like we're like we're Jake and I on the on the on the ivory tower trying to shame anybody on on data practices and things like that. It's it's just like problems that should be put into business best practices. Um, and so we kind of took that model um, into uh, fundraising. Uh, keeping obviously keeping contact information on on fundraising and actually keeping a record of when somebody gave. Um, so like if, if if you know someone gives every March, you should update their contact information so you can send them a mail or sometime in February. Like that, like those are just like very easy 
uh, best practices that, that we help organizations put into place. Um, and we find that just having a list that is um, kept up you know, on a quarterly or annual basis, um, it gives it a, a on average, a 15% lift. Like that 115 index is pretty standard across the board. And I've been, I, I, and I've been doing this for, for, for 20 years. If it's something that where you haven't updated your list or haven't even collected data, um, but you have an idea of, of who your customers are, obviously the lift would be much greater than that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, in 15%, you know, depending on your perspective may not sound very exciting, right? Because it seems like an incremental change. But when you're talking about marketing campaigns and when you're talking about running, you know, um, take a we work with some MSOs and they run large media campaigns, right? Um, and you spend $100,000 on a, on a major campaign. Um, and if your data is effective, and let's say you've got, you spend $100,000 and that, and that drives like a really, a, let's just use a good campaign. It drives like a million dollars in revenue, 15% um, improvement um, without having to spend, you don't necessarily need to spend more money. You're just spending that, money that budget more effectively Perfect. yeah exactly that's one hundred and fifty thousand dollars of extra revenue that you would get out of that campaign right so 15 percent becomes very meaningful and if you think about it from a margin perspective any retailer in the cannabis space would love to get 15 percent more margin on anything they're doing right especially yeah. california where margin is hard to come by these days <laughs> yeah i mean and i think also i mean you know thinking about ways that 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 that, that value uh, that, that that data can be valued by by, by uh, an MSO or or you know your single operator dispensary or you know, kind of anywhere in between is that it having a data set that is kept up to date and that you can point to as an asset of your company automatically brings more value to your company itself and something you can point to in something like 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 due diligence or um, something like that that actually like is a is an owned and operated asset. That you know how it's sourced, you know how it's kept up, you know how it's utilized, and that information by itself is is just valuable. Uh, is, is is a valuable asset, um, to you know to to keep up. Yeah. So, so let's talk a little bit about about capturing and storing data. Right. right now, you've you and your company and your colleagues have been doing this for a long time, so you understand how to house data and keep it in a compliant state of rest um, and how to onboard and, and, you know, but a lot of people don't have that expertise. And again, we'll, we'll pre preface this section with, we're not lawyers. This is not legal advice. However, yeah. there are some general guidelines to think about. Um, Cause I see a lot of people, um, when, when we, sometimes we talk to advertisers and say, okay, do you have a customer file? Um, and they say yes, and then they just email us the customer file. Oh, no, yeah, I'll, I'll right. Which is not, which is not what we want to do. Right. Um, yeah. You need to be. If someone gives you their information, let's start at the very beginning, which is there should be some sort of exchange of information in the sense of this is my privacy policy. You're giving me your information, and here's what I'm going to do with it. Now, on the internet. This is relatively well handled. There's lots of plugins. If you're running a newsletter, they, you know, there's some legal language that you can kind of copy and paste that says what you are and are not going to do with it. Um, it gets a little hazier, I think, at the retail level when you've got a customer coming in off the street. Um, and let's take a real, you know, pen and paper situation where someone might, uh, and I've seen this before, you know, they've got a clipboard and a name with you know, a sheet that says, what's your name, what's your email address, sign up for our newsletter, right? Um, now, they someone does that, they give you the information, um, and now you have a little bit of information about them. How does someone, how does a, uh, someone who is holding that information, the customer data, get to the point where they can augment it with second party data or do a data match? Um, because I think there's a, there's a pretty big gap there in terms of what some people's practices are. Yeah, I mean, so I think there's um, the, the way that uh, data companies do matching um, is, is 
a lot of the time based um, in, in an anonymous environment, which means that if you have a list of email addresses and you have a trusted data company, that data company can help you to hash the email in an industry standard practice. And that hashed email um, will be able to be machine read in, you know, in a, in a, in a privacy compliant way um, and then appended with some of the data we talked about before. Um, but it won't be very useful to someone who's trying to hack into that Outlook email that you send uh, errantly. Um, and then that hashed email kind of becomes a key that can unlock all of the other things you want to do with that piece of data. Um, that's how you know we uh, we send data to uh, be onboarded for, for for digital targeting. Um, it's how we can actually create what would be um, a, a unique identifier that sits next to the PII. So if you have a data set of Matt Severno one two three Main Street, Jake Lickey, four five six Evergreen Terrace. Well, on your data set, we might be 00001 and 0002. And you just kind of create that unique identifier so that um, when you're actually maintaining that data set, when you're emailing it um, around the Dropbox link or other secure link to send the, the, the data set around, you can work on those hashed emails, unique identifiers, and keep things into a anonymous environment um, and kind of be loyal to the customer that's being loyal back to you um, okay. rather than exposing their information or kind of appending the data and then utilizing it for ways that um, you and your lawyer decide that probably aren't ways that you should be utilizing it. Um, so just like setting up those best practices and working with like tr trusted companies to actually execute on communications is, is key. Yeah, now I want to live on Evergreen Terrace. That sounds like a nice place with a good view. Um, but, you know, that that aside, uh, real quick on hashing. This is a term that you and I use and, and, yeah. and familiar with. Um, and just a brief cryptography lesson for the audience. Um, you can take a, a, a piece of information like an email address or a phone number or a string of characters, and you can run it through a cryptographic hash. The most common ones are going to be SHA-256 or MD5. Um, those are just the terms you might hear. And what it does is it takes that information and turns it into a big long list of unreadable characters. Um, and that is what the hash is that we're talking about. So it's a big many digit bunch of letters, numbers, you can't read it. And a cryptographic hash is a one-way function. There's not actually a mathematical way to go backwards to the original source. Um, but the same input creates the same output. So if I have my email address, jacobmediagel.com, and I run it through a SHA-256 hash, and Matt has my same email address for a different reason, and he runs it through the same hash, the resulting um, string of characters will be the same. Unreadable, but they've now, now matched up kind of like the Rosetta Stone. Um, and that is the function that creates uh, privacy and compliance within these audience matching uh, ecosystems. Um, if anyone has questions, by the way, at any point, um, feel free to put them in the chat um, and we'll answer them as long as they're not, you know, wildly inappropriate. Um, okay, so we've got, uh, we've talked a little bit about data cleanliness. We talked about data matching. Um, you mentioned the uh, the Peace Corps example where you're, where you're, trying to rematch people's records. Do you have um, any other categories of examples where you have used um, second party data or you know, augmented someone's first party data in an interesting way with um, some compelling results? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, and, I'll, and we, we can get into specifically what we're doing in cannabis. Um, you know, we have um, several clients that have um, exactly the type of list that, that, that we've been mentioning. Um, and again, it's, it's all about just kind of re-engaging, reactivating, making that digital spend dollar go further, making your communications go further and actually knowing about, um, what actual customers, um, are doing in your, uh, retail location. Um, 
So we've been able to take lists of emails that um, we have from, a, from, from, from clients. Um, and I, I don't want to be giving away uh, names or things because we're, you know, we, we try to maintain our, maintain our NDAs and, and privacy, but um, we were, we, we were able to really uh, in like a very nimble way match um, two, two kind of sets of lists that, that, that the, uh, that the dispensary had compiled um, and uh, put put the identifier on it to get it onboarded into a digital program that was already running toward you know a uh, prospective audience and make that a known audience that sits alongside the prospective audience in the digital campaign. And so you're kind of um, almost like you're, like you're infusing your own. Uh, targeting um, with with really, really good information because you know these people have bought products at your store and then they've signed up for something at your store. Um, uh, you know, and like that's that's kind of what we, you know, pardon the, pardon the sales pitch, but that's what we're putting into place kind of as a uh, industry standard with MediaGel. Um, and it's something that is a really good first step. And again, like one, utilizing your own data assets to uh, engaging with people who you know like your uh, dispensary. Uh, you know, at least they've been there once at least. Um, and then three, uh, making that digital dollar go farther um, because it's, it's much, um, much easier to uh, maintain a customer than to have to acquire or even worse, have to reacquire uh, the same customer. So, I mean, I think um, customer retention is, is, is super important and, it, and it's kind of what we're going for. Um, but there's something even more uh, interesting behind door number three, Jake. Wait, there's I'm, more. Um, yes. No. So uh, another thing you can do once you kind of enhance that first party data set and turn it into a really very cool second party data set is like I said, that things are really interesting and get more interesting when you get to the aggregate level. Well, if you have 100,000 records of people you know were in your store, we were able to match 60,000 of those. We can take that 60,000, and if you're like in the Bay Area or something, we can look at other records that we have on our file in the Bay Area, and we can actually begin to look at similarities and differences of your universe and other folks that are potential cannabis customers. And then we can score the entire Bay Area on the likelihood of their, or propensity rather, of them visiting your retail location based on, you know, starting off with like the distance from the dispensary, but also like, do they have similar, do they, do they share um, similar attributes? Same, you know, same income ranges, uh, same age, um, male or female. And you can get, and it, and it gets interesting because not only can you begin to target those prospects in a really efficient way, you actually kind of start to learn about your customer base and learn like whether you were intentionally or unintentionally, like who, who's actually coming into your store and who, who you're targeting in the first place. Um, and, it, you know, the changes you want to make, um, I, you know, at, at incremental levels about your business. Um, and uh, I, you know, I, I think I'd be remiss to say that because of the work that we've done, um, you know, I started out in tobacco control, kind of cleaning up the mess of 150 years of bad actors in the tobacco industry and the state governments that were kind of um, not doing a very good job for years and years of, of, of controlling that, that, that industry with, with their targeting practices and, 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 and their, their practices, cleaning up that mess kind of led to some of the things that um, I think a lot of cannabis control boards are putting into place on um, advertising restrictions um, to, you know, their audiences, but also content, um, also like, you know, kind of, the, kind of private regulation on, uh, you know, the publishers and publisher networks of what ads can, can, can't say. Um, and so, 
we uh, I got really good at discerning age of, of, of a record. And we have ways to 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 kind of multi-source um, and do the do, do, do the best job besides the government itself um, of verifying that age of being 21 plus. And so um, really everything we talked about and the kind of new customer acquisition on top of it can you know, maintain that compliance layer that's, that's needed. Um, and so like, and like the things you learn from um, at like, just like, the, like the ongoing process of the data hygiene and the, and the aggregation and comparing it to other universes, like just kind of helps that compliance process along because it like, it just becomes second nature and like best practices. The same way that you are utilizing metric every single day and it's a, it's, it's a headache for you, but it's helping the industry run and the industry, you know, thrive um, in, in, a, in, a, in a really tough environment, um, those data best practices can, can start doing the same. Yeah. Okay. So there's, there's two, two things in there in your last statement. So I want to yeah. circle back to the, the first part of what you were talking about, um, which is uh, another example of sort of second party augmentation. And, and uh, I'll use examples that are relevant to my everyday world. Um, We've run, and disclaimer, we do work with Statera. That's pretty public information. We have a press release that we put out about a month ago. Um, but that means that we have some real world examples, although you know names will be withheld. Um, we ran a customer file for a delivery service in California, right? Um, and in that customer file, we, we find some things that were not surprising given this particular brand and, and where it is targeted, but... Um, you saw that it was uh, a younger audience, a less affluent audience, and it was in, you know, there are specific regions. Um, now, why is that information interesting? Well, if we can look at the the other people in the population where that company is servicing, and we can find the people that are not currently their customers, but have those same indicators, then we can use that when we're running uh, an advertising campaign, right, to target new customers. Now, Again, the difference may not be that much. You may say that, okay, that we found that the cohort in this instance tends to be 15%, I'll just use that number again, more in the 25 to 35 age range than it is in the 45 to 55 age range or other any other age ranges. Um, once we know that piece of information, then we can run ads to that particular cohort that are not the existing customers. So now what have we done? We've gained maybe a 15% advantage, but again, a 15% advantage is actually very material when it comes to running digital advertising, where you're running millions of impressions. Um, that has a very real outcome in terms of ROAS, the return on ad spend, and, and the results that you get back. Um, so I just wanted to give that sort of concrete example yeah. of what you were talking about. And then um, in terms of the age gating, right? So Age gating is a big topic. Um, it's become much more relevant now. Um, as more states come online, there are new amounts of legislation coming on. Uh, New York specifically just passed last month, two months ago, not March, right? Um, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, the reg, the regs got um, kind of uh, debated all in the fall of twenty two, and they got implemented in March. Um, yeah, yeah. So. Um, one of the ways that historically advertisers have been able to do what's called generally LDA or legal drinking age is usually means 21 plus. It's a category that's been around for a long time within the uh, advertising industry. There's an IAB category for it. Uh, and advertisers use that and publishers would indicate in, in the advertising ecosystem which part of their inventory is going to be suited more towards adults. And the threshold for that came from the alcohol industry, and it's generally around 70%. In California, it's 71.6%. No one will tell me where that number came from, but that is the number. Um, and that has transferred over into cannabis um, for the most, of the most of the time. So in most states, it's either 70% of your audience needs to be 21 or plus, or they take the opposite and say no more than 30% of your audience can be reasonably assumed to be under 21. 
Um, now, publishers, people who run websites and have applications, they've got a reasonably good idea of who their audience is based on a bunch of things. Sometimes it's registration. Sometimes they will limit um, adult-based advertising to parts of their inventory that where they know who the customer is and generally what their age is. And so largely people have advertisers have been able to rely on the publisher saying, this is okay, much like how late night TV does, does different stuff than regular daytime TV. And they said that, well, you know, kids are in bed at this time, so they're not watching it. Um, these have been pretty loose metrics, but the new round of legislations that are coming out, like what New York has done, which has now said that if you are advertising, 90% of your audience needs to be like pretty provably over 21. Yeah. Okay, that's that becomes a problem very quickly um, for an advertiser or a brand to understand how do I know I'm not breaking that law, right? Because if you ask the publisher, they're not really going to back you up. Um, and the existing data sets that people can choose from that say that, you know, this is a 21 plus audience are largely modeled. So if you go to a, a media buying platform, um, let's say it supports cannabis, there's there's a handful of them out there now. And you say, I want to run this cannabis ad. Um, I want to make sure that I'm running at 21 plus for New York. If you ask those companies how they know that the audience is 21 or plus, you generally do not get a specific answer um, because it's largely modeled data. It's not deterministic. Um, and this is where I'll, I'll throw the slow pitch over to you, Matt. Um, and you can talk a little bit about yeah. you have, you know, because you're sourcing stuff with government records. Can you talk about how you're you know, tying those pieces together? Yeah. So, I mean, um, it's it's. Uh, like I think, you know, like I think I think it's a it's a brave new world for, for that kind of uh, regulation. But I think um, the good news is like the, is, is that the time is ripe. And the good news long-term is that it's going to help to make the cannabis industry really strong. And there's a, there's a, there's a lot of reasons why. I mean, I think if you look at, um, and I'm going to go a little bit of a history lesson, so just bear with me. Um, if you look at, like I mentioned tobacco, like, you know, it's on the congressional record now. There, there was 150 years of bad acting by that by that industry, and it's it, and it's it, it was to the industry's detriment in the end. It's got vitamins. It's good for you. Well, yeah, right. Um, alcohol. The industry was so afraid after prohibition that they didn't even need the federal government, state governments really didn't need to even implement any advertising because there was so much self policing on alcohol ads. The the actual like ban on alcohol ads was was not a government ban. It wasn't a network ban, you know, by TV networks. Um, it was a self-policing ban by all the big liquor and, and, and beer companies not to advertise because they were so terrified of, of uh, prohibition. So and so the, the those laws, or you know that that those industry standards, the the laws and and the, and the settlement terms with tobacco um, are all reactive to just. The industry is being thriving to troubles, and alcohol didn't suffer the same fate of tobacco because they kind of got smart after prohibition. But um, cannabis is coming out of a prohibition era, but in, in, in a completely different way. And cannabis control boards, I think, to their credit, and what can be beneficial to the industry is that this is a proactive way of making sure that. Um, we're following the best practices that are now like technologically available um, to run advertising in a responsible way. Um, and so what we do is we work, like Jake said, with state governments, uh, with municipal governments, and we leverage um, you know, their expertise in their own uh, in their own states to um, verify. Uh, in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a in a marketing industry term, not a legal term, uh, verifying ways of uh, making sure that the records that we say are, are 21 are 21. And we also work with um, a company called Truthset. There's the Truthset Data Collective, truthset.io, that um, just like their name says, they, they have a truth set of known uh, 
you know, a lot of it, I said we have 1,700 data elements. Well, we have about 260 million. Um, a lot of those um, are, are uh, able to be measured by Truthset because they keep a panel of known attributes that are similar to the ones that we collect. And we, um, quarter after quarter, even though we've only been in existence now going on uh, two years, um, we've done um, four quarters of, of, of measurement with them, and we consistently uh, score at the at the at the at the very top or the at the top or very top of of age categories across different age buckets. From and then and we particularly are um, best suited at um, uh, the ages 18 to 35. And I know I just did a sales pitch there and Jake asked me not to do that. So I'm, I apologize to Jake to you and I apologize to the audience. But anyhow, that's how we verify. No, our I, said, I said it was a slow pitch, not no pitch. Yeah. So it was, okay. it was fine. Yeah, it wasn't a T. It wasn't a, yeah, I'm not playing yeah. T ball here. Um, um, sorry. But that being said, I mean, there are ways to do this correctly. Um, I think there are, there are, you know, if you think about the intent, um, lists like ours give a give a, give a strong intent on um, getting getting it right. Um, we, there's other things that we do as well. Is that we we acquire um, data on where schools are located, and we exclude homes that abut the school uh, from targeting audiences. Um, we spoke specifically to the New Jersey Cannabis Control Board. We had a question from, from an MSO that was putting on a, a mailer. Um, does, it, does advertising within a school zone um, equal or like 500 feet of a school, whatever the, whatever the reg is? I think it's, feet, yeah. yeah. Um, does that equal a digital ad or a mailer sent to a home that abuts a school? And they didn't have an answer. So... Yeah. Yeah, how was actually yeah. a lot of that, a lot of not an answer, right? Yeah. Because if you look at the state legislation and the rules, and we do this every day almost because we run stuff in you know different states, um, the actual number of laws, while there's a lot of them collectively, because each state has a set of laws and some of them have 20, some of them have 10, um, there's a fair amount of room for interpretation still, which I think will get cleared up at some point. But yeah, like those that's not even that big of a corner case, but you know, there's sometimes the digital advertising law is just like two sentences, right? Yeah. Don't serve to people that are 21. Don't whatever, you know, someone came up with at the time of legislation. Um, well, yeah. I mean, and, 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 and I think look, the, the way the law, the laws are going to get clarified is by the legislatures and the agencies observing what's happening. So it's to our detriment to be doing things wrong because the the more wrong that we as an industry are, the more stringent, and I was going to use another term up, the uh, those laws are going to be. And yeah. so, you know, we, we want to be setting the table with best practices. We don't want to be reacting. We want to be proactive. And that's what I meant when I compared what happened in tobacco and alcohol to, to what we're doing is we want to be proactive in what we're creating as an industry. Um, and so those laws will be um, based and the, and the changes to them will be based on what is observed. And we want to be putting our best foot forward to make sure that our industry is not um, regulated um, out of business. Yep. Um, we do have a couple of questions and we're running up on time. So I, um, I wanted to get to these here real quick. Um, we have our good friend, anonymous attendee. Uh, is asking, uh, how often should data lists be reviewed to make sure they are not out of date? Yeah, I mean, we, so, um, you know, we, uh, again, I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to put a sales pitch on, but we, when, when we work with a client, um, we, we do something called a, a data records under management contract, where we will run your list through all of our hygiene, um, Really on, a, really on a monthly basis that is that all the hygiene is kind of exposed back to the client. Um, but what that means for records under management is that it's kind of kind of like, like constantly being read by by some of our, uh, it's not AI, as Jake, so Jake clarified this before the call, the difference between AI and ML. ML is machine learning. So, the, so 
we're learning about um, your your data and teaching you about your data um, in real time. And you know that's really exposed to to, to, to you as a client or into your vendor to your vendors, uh, digital vendors, mail vendors, really really on a monthly basis. Um, particularly if you're dealing with like a younger uh, a younger audience, um, which I think a lot of the um, cannabis loyalty programs and, and, and things like that are, you know, like we are. Yeah. Uh, you know, monthly. I mean, I, but I, I would say, look, if, if, if you're um, worried about budgets, if you're worried about kind of just like a real cadence, um, at least quarterly, sorry, every three months. And, and then what that does is the amount of money that you're going to be spending on keeping your records under management is minuscule compared to two things. The amount of money you'd be wasting on sending mailers and digital ads to the wrong addresses and wrong people. And the amount of money that you're wasting and or um, mismanaging by sending a mailer to a home that is no longer compliant with the laws we just discussed. Because you can send yeah. somebody to 123 Main Street that you thought was filled with adults and it's not. Or Evergreen Terrace. Or, or Evergreen Terrace, yeah. yeah. Um, great. And then I was going to actually mention something. This is a little bit of a tangent, but um, yeah, machine learning, you're using the, using basically, let's say, recipes, for lack of a better term, um, that know how to how to clean data, whereas AI, you know, you said you can't use AI. Well, fun fact, I mean, technically, you could at this point, you could throw it into chat GPT if it was language based stuff and you could ask your questions. Now, one just little PSA for everyone is that if you're using some service like that, you're giving all your data to that company, right? So if you take your customer list and you drop it into ChatGPT, you've now given that information to OpenAI. Um, and you may or probably didn't read the uh, documentation that came with that privacy policy. So just a thing to think about when you are working with data, there are a lot of tools coming out that do some cool stuff, but you should be aware at uh, what you're doing with the data and who you're giving it to. Um, there's ways to work on like build AI systems on your own data and keep it private, but ChatGPT out of the box using the web interfaces is not that. So I would caution people from just uploading their data files randomly to um, services if you don't know what is happening with it. Uh, another question, I think we've got time for one more. Yeah. Uh, what is the single biggest data issue you see in cannabis? Um, I think it's the fact that there's a siloing of data sets, um, and that is based in the kind of issues that are across the industry, whether it be data, regulation, pricing, and markets, is that there's, you know, several dozen states, there's several dozen um, different ways to interpret the, the regulations in each state. Um, and there are a multitude of different tools that are used across the cannabis industry that all are used to kind of create data and create best practices, but there's no, um, you know, just, just beginning to be an effort to kind of merge all of that together. And I think that um, a lot of that is based on um, where, like we're building the plan as it, as it takes off. Um, which is which is I think a really great thing for us to be doing, and I speak, I, I use the royal we uh, as an industry, um, but I think the the kind of um, there's a lot of uh, and I don't I don't mean I don't mean to use the, the term in a, in a detrimental way, but I think there's a lot of fear of what to, what you can do with data sets, mm -hmm. um, and that that fear is also you know it's. I think people are right to be, you know, sort of uh, wary of, of what they, they should be doing with their data, whether they're complying with privacy laws, whether their data is going to get um, misused by someone else, whether some people are going to steal their customers. Um, I, th I think those are all unanswered questions that if, if, if you don't um, have, a, have, have a trusted person to, to, to educate you about that and you don't have the time to actually think about those questions, then you can you just kind of leave them aside. And so the silos kind of remain up. And as your business grows, the silos, those get bigger and the walls between your data sets get stronger. And then like that's, it just creates chaos. Um, 
So like the lack of education on what we can do with, with, with data. Um, and, you know, I think that there's been, um, you know, cases where data like that customer data um, has been kind of um, used use as a use as a commodity in, 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 the, in the wrong way because of the silos and, and that there's uh, ways for, you know, um, cannabis companies and dispensaries to kind of keep their data their own, but also working to make sure that it's, it's the best it can be by kind of integrating all of the different software sets that they're actually utilizing. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I think it's a growth issue. Um, I think it's one we can solve. Um, I really like, you know, personally worked with, uh, 50 different state laws in, in politics and in tobacco control, working with, um, different, you know, kind of upstart software companies in, in, in the same way. Um, so it's something that I want to tackle with you. Um, and it's something I think is, is solvable. And I think if we wait for things like, you know, there's, there was a hearing this morning. I hope that safe making passes. I'm an advocate for it. We do work with some of the industry associations that work on that. But if, 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 you, if it's a waiting game for you to kind of, oh, we're going to be all saved by federal legislation or, or we'll be saved by, you know, certain other things, it, it's not going to get easier. It's going to get much harder. Um, and so to be in to be in a place where um, you're ready for that change, I, I, I think is 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 uh, super important too. Yeah, the lowering of barriers is just going to create additional competition, right? Yeah. So if you're in the game now, you should in many ways take advantage of the artificial barriers that are up. As much as it makes your life difficult, it does actually give you some amount of doesn't feel like it, but some amount of protection from competition. Um, establishing your foundations and your moats today is going to set you up for better success in the future. Uh, we're running out of time here or slightly over, but I just want to circle back to something you said, which was that, you know, fear, I think, is actually the appropriate emotion to have about your data if you don't understand what you're doing with it in two contexts, right? How you use it. If you don't understand how you can and can't use it, you really can create liabilities for yourself. Um, and those liabilities can compound quickly because in some instances it's at the record level. So the, you know, fines or, or penalties can stack up quickly when you times things by a hundred thousand or 10,000. Um, so I would, you know, have a healthy fear of, of doing the wrong thing, but also I think what gets overlooked is, um, once you get past understanding some of what you can and can't do have another fear of. Who are you giving your data to and what are they doing with it? Yeah. Um, because there's certainly instances today of service providers within the cannabis space and others, but specifically we're talking about the cannabis space now, um, where those service providers are um, extracting data from the owners of that. So let's say a dispenser owner has a customer list. Um, there's places where you can be sharing your data and then the owners of the data aren't really reading the fine print and they don't understand that they're really giving away an asset that they have to a third party. So that's another warning not to be. And in real terms, like I, I think that um, it, all it means is that you, if Matt Saverna is in your dispensary on Thursday, you should not be spending the same amount of money to uh, retain my business to reacquire me on that next on two weeks from that Thursday for me to yeah. come back. It should like, that's the, that's the end goal for all of this. Yeah. And so however we, however you get there um, is, you know, like solves, solves really what, you know, the issue that, that we, that was, was the last question. So. Okay. Well, we are just a little bit over on time, so we're going to wrap it up here. Um, Matt, thank you so much for joining uh, our marketing podcast. How can people reach you or Statera um, if they want to find out more information about your services? You mentioned that there's a bunch of different things and ways that you can help people potentially. Yeah, um, I'm. it's, it's matt at statera.com. So it's S-T-A-T-A-R-A.com, matt at statera.com. Um, 
we'll be put, we'll be putting this video on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, Matt Taverna. It's Tavern with an A. If you, I think it's on LinkedIn and, now. We're already there. On, we're, uh, we're on LinkedIn. We're live. Yeah. No, I, I, well, so anyhow, um, you know, um, Matt at Statera.com, sales at Statera.com. If you know the media gel folks, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll put you in touch. Um, Great. We'd love to hear from you. And, and even if it's just to evangelize about some of the things we talked about, um, it'd be great to hear from folks. So. Perfect. Thanks for your time um, and sharing your knowledge and experience with everyone. Uh, this has been our Marketing Live podcast from MediaGel. I'm Jake Lickie, your host. If you want to get a hold of me, I also can be found at jake at mediagel.com. That's MediaGel with a J. Thanks, everyone. Have a good day. Thank you.